Well, I invite you to turn with me in the Bible. We're actually going to look at uh, two passages. Your worship guide, I think, mentions uh, one in Luke chapter 9. So if you want to um, turn there with one finger or get, keep your device ready and be quick on the draw with your tapping on your device, however you want to get to the Bible passage, uh, we're going to look at Hebrews 12 as well. And you can find or should be able to find a Bible underneath the, uh, underneath the chair rack in front of you if you uh, don't have one with you and want to, to follow along with us. We're continuing again this week. We're really coming into the last uh, home stretch uh, this week and then next week of this series we've been doing since the first part of August. Don't waste your struggle looking at how God wants to actually use the difficult things in our our lives to help strengthen us and, and grow us. So we've been continuing to think about that and ponder, ponder that the last number of, of weeks. In uh, three weeks, I get three Sundays, not, not uh, next Sunday, but the next Sunday, we will be beginning a new sermon series as well. We're going to work through the book of Daniel. So getting back to an Old Testament book, and that'll probably carry us through the, the end of the year. Daniel's got a lot of really interesting stories that I think are engaging for us. We're going to look at what, what spiritual truth there is for our lives day to day from that particular book of Scripture. And this series has been a little bit more topical, although we've been looking at passages of the Bible each week. This will get us back to kind of working through piece by piece a, a book of the Bible. So we'll be sharing a little bit more about our Sunday school lineup that'll start afresh October 7th as as well, but, uh, but that's where we're headed in our, our sermon series. But today we want to continue thinking about this idea of don't waste our struggles. And in particular, we want to talk about something that I think we've, we've kind of touched on along, along the pathway, but we really haven't spent much time unpacking. And if you'll ex- excuse my play on words, we could put it this way, that our struggles, if we will let them, can help scare the sin out of us. Right? They really can. And whether the challenges we face are things that we brought upon ourselves or they're things that God has just placed in our lives, the Bible teaches that one of the things that God's doing in the struggles in our lives is awakening us to a greater love for God and His purposes and a deeper distaste, even hatred, dislike for the sinful pathways that we tend to go down. And so we're going to see that today as we look at a couple of verses of Scripture. I guess I'll read first Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 9, and I think you'll see what I'm, what I'm driving at here pretty quickly. Jesus says this in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse, really in verse 23, not just verse 25, And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. And then verse 25, maybe the the crux of our discussion today. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Could probably turn that around a little bit and say in the reverse, as we think about struggles, what does it harm a man if he loses all in this world, but keeps his soul? As we could turn that around a little bit as we think about what God might be doing in our struggles and challenges. And then Hebrews chapter 12, 
I want to read a, a little bit longer section from there. Again, I think I want you to be thinking about what do these verses say about what God is doing in the midst of the struggles, the difficulties that I face. And how does that even, this is going to point out, how does that even relate to what Jesus has done and is doing? So starting in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, he's talking about chapter 11, where he's described all these believers that have come before, most of whom have faced extreme difficulty. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Shows the truth that's all across Scripture. When we're wanting to grow in relationship with God, it means taking something off the old way and the old life and putting something new on. So uh, let us lay aside every weight and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Get rid of that junk and move towards the good relationship with the Lord. Then verse 2, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We aren't going to be able to do this on our own. We've got to do it through Jesus's work. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Then verse 3, it says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. He's talking about Jesus. Think about him. Meditate on him. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Some of these believers were being persecuted, right? So they're being actually hauled into court and maybe even brought to death. So we think about our struggles, which, you know, each of our struggles is our struggle. They might feel pretty severe. This is reminding us there's, there's probably even more severe struggles that we could be having. Verse 5, it goes on. And you have... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. And we said a couple of weeks ago that one thing that God might be doing in our struggles is disciplining us, is helping us. Read on with me, verse 7. What does that look like? It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. It's a good thing, treating us as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Just saying this is the normal way of things that parents discipline their kids. Verse 9, besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time as seemed best to them, but discipline us, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. And then verse 11, listen to this one, pointing to the transforming work that God wants to see in our lives through our struggles. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we do not like your discipline. <laughs> we are just like uh, children 
who struggle to see the good and the benefit, the productive purpose of the challenges that we face at the hand of you, our loving Father. And so, Lord, we need faith to believe what these verses say today. We desire in our recognition of what Christ has done for us and in our perception of what God, is, God the Father is doing for us in correcting us in whatever struggles we're facing today. Lord, we want to walk that path of endurance, run with endurance the race that is set before us, and put off the things in our life that we know are so damaging to us and really to our relationship with you and so often to our relationship with others. Lord, we need your power. We need your grace today to understand these things and to live them out. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to take a few moments today to read, and you'll find this in the back of your worship guide. If you're here each week, you know that I like to read a quote or two, but I certainly don't normally read as much as we're going to read today. But I found in my recent challenges and struggles, which were of a, of a health nature, that uh, this book, The Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, it's not about marriage and divorce. It's about the divide between heaven and earth and hell is basically what it is. So that's what it means by divorce. It means separation in that sense. And some find C.S. Lewis, I know it resonates real well with some of us, others of us. It's something we don't connect to all that well. So bear with me if it's just not your, your cup of tea. And in a sense, we're jumping in in the middle of a conversation. The book, The Great Divorce, is about uh, essentially a bus tour. It's C.S. Lewis fictional. So there's a few things in here that I don't exactly agree with the way that he, he says them, but I nevertheless find them compelling and engaging for my heart and my mind. And, and so these people are going on this bus tour of, I don't know what you would call it, the outskirts of heaven, I guess. And they get off and they get to walk around, just like you would go somewhere to sightseeing and you'd hop off and go see this uh, beautiful valley over here or stop off at this museum or whatever. They're going on this bus tour and they hop off and it really focuses in on one particular individual. And so he's just a person like you and me, but he's gotten, you know, had the ticket to be able to go on this tour and he's running into all these different beings that are in this sort of semi-heavenly realm. And he talks to them and interacts with them. And they reveal to him things about the, the things beyond, the life eternal. And I, I thought about it particularly as these, uh, these verses today remind us in verse 2 of Hebrews 12 that we're to look to Jesus who endured the cross for the joy set before him and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And also that the verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So this is a conversation that these two people are having that I think helps us understand what, depending on our perspective, we can grasp about God's work in the midst of our struggles. So read along with me, even if you don't normally turn to the sermon notes section. You might want to read it today because it's, uh, it's a bit lengthy and it's, uh, it's got some, some depth and some content to it. 
So this is the being that, uh, that the gentleman from earth is talking to. He begins and says this. He says, you can call it, you can call it the valley of the shadow of life. And yet those who, for those who stay here, it will have been heaven from the first. And you can call those sad streets in the town yonder the valley of the shadow of death. But to those who remain there, they will have been hell even from the beginning. I suppose he saw that I looked puzzled, for presently he spoke again. Son, he said, you cannot in your present state understand eternity, but you can get some likeness of it if you say that both good and evil, when they are full grown, become retrospective. That means looking backwards, retrospective. Not only this valley, but all this earthly past will have been heaven to those who are saved. Not only the twilight in that town, but all their life on earth too, will then be seen by the damned to have been hell. That is what mortals misunderstand. They say of some temporal suffering, temporal means earthly short-term suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into a glory. And of some sinful pleasure, they say, let me have this and I'll take the consequences. Little dreaming how damnation will work back into their past and contaminate the pleasure of sin. Both processes begin even before death, he says. The good man's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remembered sorrows take on the quality of heaven. The bad man's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with darkness. And that is why at the end of all things, when the sun rises here and the twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. Is not that very hard, sir? Well, I mean, the real sense of that's the real sense of what they will say. In the actual language of the lost, the words will be different, no doubt. One will say he's always served his country, right or wrong. Another that he's sacrificed everything for his art. And some will say they've never been taken in, never been duped. And some that, thank God, they've always looked out for number one. And nearly all, that at least they've been true to themselves. And the saved? Ah, the saved. What happens to them is best described as the opposite of a mirage. Maybe for the young ones here, you know, a mirage is something that's off in the distance, maybe in the desert, and it looks great from a distance, and you get up to it, and you find out what? There's nothing there. Nothing at all. It says this is the opposite. Listen to what he says. What seemed, when they entered it, to be the veil of misery, he's talking about our struggles and our sufferings in this life, turns out, when they look back, to have been a well. And where present experience saw only salt deserts, memory truthfully records that pools were full of water. One more short paragraph. Then those who are, are right, who say that heaven and hell are only states of mind? Hush, he said sternly. Do not blaspheme. Hell is a state of mind. I'm not sure if I go along with Lewis here, but let's follow him. You never said a truer word. And every state of mind left to itself, everything shut up, 
shut up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is in the end hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. For all that can be shaken will be shaken. And only the unshakable remains. What's Lewis saying there? Maybe a little hard to follow. Might take you a couple of additional reads after the worship service this afternoon or this week or some pondering to to wrestle with it. What he's saying is this, is that even the difficult struggles that we face on this life, if we are people who are focused on God and his glory and focused on a heavenly perspective, that essentially in the future, we are going to look back upon those things and find out that they were actually a rich well for us. They looked like a desert. They looked like the opposite of a mirage, that nothing was there. And instead, we're going to find and realize, oh, that was actually maybe the richest, most beneficial thing that I ever experienced. And in particular, he talks about the fact that we will realize that this is actually designed for our strengthening, for our building up, to challenge us, to grow us in our relationship with God, particularly in our righteousness. John Piper puts it this way. He's a little more succinct than than C.S. Lewis. He says this. He says, don't just think of battling against your struggles. Also think of battling with your struggles. And he means with them in your hand as like a weapon. I, I don't know how many of you are you know, outdoors people, uh, hunters like to, like to shoot from time to time. I grew up in a, a hunting family, extended family, all from central Pennsylvania. So, and I remember at the young age shooting a little, a little 22, whatever, probably age eight or nine, something like that. The, the kick was the equivalent of probably a, a BB gun, basically, on a 22. I remember much more vividly the first day I fired a 12-gauge shotgun. I was about 14 years old, maybe 13. I don't know when you do uh, hunter safety. This was when we lived in Illinois. And I remember we went out to a shooting clays place that was out there in the the, the country, a little bit removed from the, the city. And I was standing on that platform and I'm sure I had been given instructions about how to handle this weapon and to do it in the right way. And they got ready to, you know, toss that clay in the air for me to to shoot at. And I I raised the gun and took aim my first time shooting this 12 gauge and uh, tried to sight it in and pow, hit the trigger. And as soon as I hit the trigger, my whole body went back like this. And then for the next week, I had this massive bruise on my bicep because if you know anything about hunting and shooting, I should have been standing like this, right? Because it's got some kick to it, especially when you're coming in at 140 pounds or whatever I was back then. And if you put it on your bicep instead of on your shoulder, it's going to bruise. It's going to hurt. Didn't work the right way. I'm sure I missed the target completely. Maybe you all have had the same experience. Well, what was the problem? In a sense, I was shooting against the gun instead of shooting with the gun. wasn't using it in the right way to achieve the thing that it really was designed to do. Maybe the same thing's true of you and me with our struggles. 
if we would begin to look at our struggles as a weapon, right? Uh, Theoretically, you could take that gun and go, if you needed to, provide some uh, meat or some food for your household. You could use it to defend your household against some uh, violent intruder if if you had to. The gun can serve a really powerful, powerful purpose, but it's got to be used in the right way. It's got to be harnessed. And that's really the main idea that I want us to take away today. It's in your sermon notes section that when we look to Christ to enable us to harness our struggles to fight sin and pursue godliness, we don't waste them. So maybe start thinking about whatever struggles you've got in your own life. Again, maybe they're things that you, you know, you brought upon your, yourself. You know, you've blown up in anger in somebody and that's damaged a relationship, Right? Um, whatever the situation is, you've got an addictive pattern in your life and it's damaging you and damaging others around you. And it's uh, hindering your ability to really do what God wants you to do in, uh, in this life. Maybe, maybe it's just laxness about pursuing God. You're just very casual, uninterested and really running hard after God. And you realize, okay, I'm, I'm actually living a pretty empty life. I'm struggling to make it because I, I really don't have a purpose and direction that I'm than I'm pursuing. Whatever that is, whatever that struggle is you're going through, what I'd encourage us to do today is think about picking that thing up as a powerful weapon to knock down sin in our life, shoot it out of the sky, and in a sense to defend ourselves uh, against the evil one, against his attacks, and to really grow in godliness and righteousness. So I guess the first question we've got to ask today with all of that background is, Is that the way we think about our struggles? Do we think about struggles as the opportunity? Now, of course, when we have a health struggle, maybe something that makes us concerned about our health and our life is particularly acute because we think about the fact that, well, we're all going to meet the Lord at some time, and maybe it's going to be sooner than I thought it was because I'm not sure how my health is right now. And hopefully that kind of struggle in particular awakens us to say, when I meet the Lord, I want to have responded to his grace in such a deep way that I know I'm never going to be perfect. I know I'm never going to root out of my life all of the sin patterns and all the things that aren't glorifying to him. But I really want to pursue that. And I really want to look at the Lord when I meet him and say, I've run hard after you. I've pursued you above all things. And, and in that way, uh, take, take those struggles and harness them for God's glory. A couple of application <clears throat> questions for us today as we think about this. And I really don't have much more to share with you today. I, I, I hope we'll ponder that picture and think about the things in our lives. And maybe this will help us to do that. Uh, How are the struggles in our lives equipping you and me to grow in godliness and to reject sin? Number one, as I just said, maybe, maybe you've had a health setback and it's reminded you that there's more important things in life than the idols that you or I have been chasing after. Maybe it's reminded us too of our mortality, that we're going to meet our maker. And that when the Bible tells us to be prepared to do that, that means looking at our life and thinking about what does it look like to pursue godliness in every area that I can. 
most of us, myself included, we kind of treat our relationship with God like a house. And you've got rooms in your house. Maybe you have people over from some time, sometimes, and you have rooms in your house where you close the door when people are coming over, right? Because it's kind of the junky room, or it's not quite decorated the way you want it to be, or you didn't get a chance to get over there and sweep the carpets or, you know, dust or whatever you wanted to. And so we have these parts of our life that maybe we keep like the living room and the kitchen. We keep them looking nice, and we're maybe those are easier areas for us to upkeep in our spiritual walk with the Lord. But most of us, if we're honest, we've got some rooms that we really need to get into. We really need to open up the door. We need to open up the door to the Lord. We need to open up the door and be honest about what's going on there in our hearts, in our desires, behind the scenes, below the surface, and uh, let the light of, of the gospel shine there. So maybe that's part of what God's doing in our struggle. Maybe we're uh, tasting the bitter consequences of some ungodly decisions that we've made and Praise God, you know, God's quick to forgive. And a lot of times people around us are as well. You know, they'll show us grace and and mercy. But the question about those areas in our life that keep coming back and repeating over again is, what does it look like to harness some of the struggles, the difficulties that have fallen upon us because of those decisions to turn it against itself, right? Like C.S. Lewis says, to have the heavenly mindset feed back into the earthly so that those things that are struggles actually become a well, a source of strength, a source of, source of growth. Think about it this way. It means asking ourselves this question, what, what am I really longing for when I pursue that lustful or that unfaithful train of thought? When I run down the, the lane of that temptation of that illicit novel or pornographic image, what am I really running towards in that? And what is the fruit that I'm getting in my life from it? It'll produce struggles. It'll eventually catch up with us. And if we're heavenly minded, we'll begin to say, how can I root this out of my life? What are we really pursuing when we blow up in anger at those around us and hurt those around us? What, what is it that makes us so explosive at that moment? Now, people are writing about this a lot. Just writing about the fact that we're angry people so often. And we don't just see it in road rage. It's not just the person in the vehicle that we read about on the newspaper. It's in each one of us. Why am I so angry? What is that telling me? How can my struggles and the damage that I've caused, maybe in that anger, how can I harness that then to, to look at, God, what are you teaching me in my heart? What is it that I'm longing for that makes me so angry? What's driving you and me to find ourselves in coveting after material things? What does it say about us where we think we really are finding life, that we've got to have that next material thing, or we come unglued? What is it revealing about our relationship with God? I'm going to go deep here. Hang with me. One last one, then I'll I'll let off the uh, gas. What does it reveal about our relationship with God When we always have church stuff as the last thing on our calendar and the first thing off, and when attending public worship and really engaging with God with our heart and our mind and our soul isn't really the desire of our hearts. What do those things say? 
Those are all opportunities, and we could go on a list, and the Lord's Holy Spirit is hopefully convicting each one of us now of areas of your life and my life, maybe different ones than I mentioned, where God's taken the things that we're struggling with, and he's given us an opportunity to meet with him, to harness them as a weapon. The struggles that we face ultimately remind us that we need Jesus, right? If you look back at Hebrews chapter 12, let me just read this in closing. It says this, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, urges us to lay aside every weight, to run after the Lord. And then it says in verse two, this is really important. How are we actually going to do this? Looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray together.